0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the New Book Network's Animal Studies channel. My name is Kyle Johansson, and I'm a host on this channel. Today, I'm very happy to be interviewing Dr. Laura Jean McKay. Laura is a novelist as well as a lecturer in creative writing at Massey University in New Zealand. Uh, Today, we'll be discussing her award winning novel, The Animals in That Country, which was published in 2020 by Scribe. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Laura.
1: Hi, Kyle. It's so nice to be here.
0: Uh, it's, it's, it's great to have you. Thanks for, for joining me here. Um, so to, to start, could you please tell us a bit about yourself, such as where you're from, um, the sort of work you do, or, or just anything else you think listeners might want to know about you?
1: I grew up in a uh, countryside area in the south of Australia, in on Kurnai country, uh, which is the indigenous country of that area. And I grew up, I guess, surrounded by animals. Uh, I lived on a horse farm where horses were being trained and I guess broken outside the window of our house. We had dogs and cats and spiders and probably a lot of snakes. <laughs> and I guess my family is quite, I wouldn't say they were animal lovers, but quite animal obsessed. So I grew up with women who would constantly stare at animals. You can't really walk down the street with my mum without her seeing a bird and making everyone stop to look at it and laugh at it or with it (laughs) um, to, to study what strange and wonderful thing it's doing. So that was a big influence on me. And as I grew, I guess I as well as being surrounded by books, I was also, sorry, surrounded by animals, I was also surrounded by books. I obviously interchanged the two <laughs> now these days. Uh, so when I started to write about the more than human world, it, it seemed like a really natural place for me to be because I've always just looked with wonder at these other creatures. And in a way, that's what fiction is. Is all about as well, just looking with wonder at something and trying to work out how you might render that on the page. Okay, well, oh, well, thanks, and yeah. So you're you're kind of all about
0: um, animals and books. Um, you, have a, so you have a you have a PhD in literary animal studies. Um, maybe this is a dumb question, but could could you just describe literary animal studies to uh, to the listeners? Because I think we all roughly know what animal studies is, but it's such a heterogeneous discipline with um, lots of interdisciplinarity and um, uh, maybe some people don't really know much about specifically literary animal studies.
1: Yeah, look, literary animal studies is a very niche (laughs) area, (laughs) a very small and dedicated crowd of people. But basically, it's looking at how we represent other animals on the page. And representation is always a really big deal, especially when it comes to fiction. As we know from the last uh, 10 years, especially, identity politics and and representation has been a really, really big topic when it comes to fiction. Who writes about who, uh, what privileged or, or non-privileged place you're writing from um, you know who, who you can write about and who you can't and when it comes to animals in, in traditional Western literary culture, there's been an idea that literature should be about the human experience, about centering the human uh, and and working out how humans are placed in that world, and everything else is often relegated to metaphor. So often when you see a literary critic uh, discussing an animal in a novel, the animal will be a stand-in for the protagonist's, you know, loneliness, <laughs> you know, and, and often the animals will also die or be treated horribly, and that's supposed to be a metaphor for the human experience as well. Literary animal studies says, well, uh what if the animal is just an animal in this story? And how can we analyze their presence? How can we look at their agency within the text? And how can we look at humans as animals as well as as part of a, a larger um, scope of species across the planet?
0: Okay, thanks. Yeah, that's that's helpful. And we're, we're gonna be talking about, um, I think probably analogies a little bit later on, um, but I guess um, literary animal studies is maybe interested in reversing. I mean, met- metaphors and analogies aren't exactly the same thing, but uh, reversing the use of metaphors, like taking uh, human metaphor, using human metaphors to understand animals, or or something to that effect. Um, at least sometimes.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a lovely there's a lovely um, statement by George Orwell. Uh, so the book Animal Farm is a really foundational text in this area, obviously. And uh, a lot of people think that it's a metaphor for Stalinism, as and it is. But in the preface to the Ukrainian text, Orwell says that one of the influences for the book was that he saw a small boy whipping a very large cart horse very brutally, and he thought if that cart horse knew his own strength, <laughs> that boy would have no hope, and isn't that, um, you know, a metaphor for for the position of of that a lot of humans find themselves in under under brutal regimes that the idea of strength and power is often around what we're told or what we believe rather than the actuality of of um, the physical person or being.
0: Okay. Um... Well, so we'll get to the book in a moment. Um, and, and I mean, the details of the book and whatnot. Um, but one thing I just uh, I, I think is worth mentioning at the beginning is um, I, I mean, I called your book award winning. Um, that's really kind of an understatement. I mean, you, you, this book won a lot of awards. It's I mean, It's been out for two years. So people have had a chance to read it and stuff. And apparently everyone loves it. Um, I mean, so you won. It's won something I, I think along the lines of five major awards. Um, the one that really kind of stood out at least monetarily is this Victorian prize, which was, I think $125,000. Um, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I, Maybe for people who are rich, that seems like nothing or something, but to me that is just a, a massive prize. Uh, so you, I mean, I, I'm not sure that's, this, this isn't really a question. I'm just commenting on the success of your, of your book. It's very impressive.
1: I mean, it's very, uh, it's life-changing a prize like that. You don't, it doesn't come across. It doesn't come along very often, and you are also very aware if you are lucky enough to receive it that it will probably never happen again. So <laughs> it's just this. It's just this completely world-changing thing um, that occurs and allows you either writing time uh, to pay the rent, mortgage. Um, in my case, it it helped us, you know, to buy a house when we didn't ever think that we would be able to, it was, you know, completely for, for a writer, when you're used to just living on little bits and pieces, it's, it was completely ridiculous.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we, we agree, but not, not ridiculous in that it's like, undeserving or something like that, but just like, wow. Like, (laughs) wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's it. (laughs) Um, Okay. Great. Um, Well, let's talk about this book that, that everyone loves. Um, So why did, why did you decide to write this book in the first place?
1: I am always interested in relationships in my work and I'm always interested in power and how power dynamics play out on the page that really fascinates me and I think it can is something that with every single story that you write especially in prose I'm talking about prose here uh, there's a power dynamic that plays out as soon as you have a character on the page and introduce someone else. And so I started to become interested in how power plays out between humans and other animals. To be honest, I thought it would be a little bit of fun as well. What would happen if if we could finally understand what other animals were saying? Because And probably because of my background, it never occurred to me that that other animals wouldn't be communicating. You know, there's a whole heap of scientific scholarship saying that that only humans have language and, (laughs) and we're so superior because of that. But to me, that's utterly ridiculous. And when those articles come out saying, guess what, crows are actually really smart you know I'm always like oh of course they are (laughs) you know all animals are smart all animals have you know different sorts of intelligence it's just not the way we might measure intelligence or sentience Uh, so uh, you know I I guess I came to the work um, with that as a given. So it was easy for me to take that imaginative leap. But then a few instances or encounters happened with other animals. One of them was that when I first started writing the book, I went over to Indonesia for a writer's festival and I met a mosquito who bit me and gave me a disease called chikungunya which means that which bends up. So basically it's a very debilitating disease and that gives you polyarthritis. Um, I got a raging fever. My skin started to shed in sheets from my body. And uh, this this sort of lasted on and off for about two years, certain aspects of it. And as I lay there... Um, completely delirious (laughs) in the midst of this fever and with my skin peeling off I thought well the only thing that could be happening to me is that I'm turning into a mosquito and (laughs) so I was going through a certain metamorphosis and as part of that I realized how very powerful this tiny tiny little insect was she had bitten me and licked and exchanged something with me exchange some information from her body to mine that was to change me for the next few years and so once you take away that idea of human exceptionalism and human power over all <laughs> and you give yourself over to something like this that a tiny tiny little insect can pass on you know that's that's very life changing and because i was writing the book at the same time Uh, It didn't actually occur to me that I might need to take a rest. (laughs) I just kept writing. Then the book started to become infected as well with its own fictional disease, which I call zoo flu. So in a way I was investigating the character's illness at the same time as I was trying to work out what was going on with my body. Uh, So I was sort of living the novel in a way.
0: (laughs) Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess if, uh, if one was not aware of the, uh, chronology, uh, leading up to the, I guess, writing of the novel and, um, the finishing, uh, you know, publication of the novel, if one sort of messed up the the timelines, um, one might think that, um, the pandemic it to, to some extent um, on you know, the COVID-19 pandemic inspired some of the novel, uh, like the, mm-hmm. the, the idea, at least the idea to use uh, a flu as a, uh, the the means via which people would come to to, to be able to communicate with animals, but that's just I guess it's just a coincidence that, um, that the COVID nineteen pandemic happened and that you were writing this book about a about a, an epidemic.
1: It was absolutely yeah. a coincidence. I have had some people ask me how I wrote the book so quickly to to release it in in May of of twenty twenty, <laughs> but it, yeah, I was writing it for seven years prior to that, and to be honest, the pandemic theme in the novel I often kept quite quiet when I was talking about it because people would find it a bit twee, uh, a bit unlikely, a bit far-fetched uh, when I would mention oh there's a there's this zoo flu and and it you know it rips through society and everyone gets it. You know people would say well you know that seems a bit that's not going to happen though. <laughs> so when it was released in in 2020, it was released right into the, the pandemic, into the major lockdowns. Um, just before we went into our first big lockdown, I was living in New Zealand at the time. Uh, I scooted over to Sydney to record the audiobook for the novel. And because things were changing so quickly at that time, I would go into the audio booth and record scenes about. People stockpiling uh, from and looting and people wearing masks and people getting strange symptoms and then I would come out of the booth that night and go through the streets of Sydney and there would be no toilet paper in the supermarkets and there would be footage of people fighting in the supermarkets and you know people were wearing masks so this this life mimicking art mimicking life thing was getting really, really brutal and quite scary, and I was also very worried that I'd written this novel that featured a pandemic and that people would be hurt by that because you know of course millions and millions of people have died and and many many more suffered from this and so I didn't want people to think that I was taking this as a light subject. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well since it was a coincidence you're uh you're free of uh any blame <laughs> or any <yeah. laughs> I think <laughs> I get a pass um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, well so uh I mean I, I, I as you know I guess um, there's a Margaret Atwood, I think poem with the same name, but I i is it is it that there's a poem by Margaret Atwood with the same name as mm-hmm. your book or is it that it's a a collection of poems? I'm a little unclear. Um but either way I I was wondering about the whether there's a relationship between Margaret Atwood's work and, um, and your book.
1: Yeah. uh, I came across the poem first and I always really loved it in the poem by Margaret Atwood called the animals in that country. She says something like, and apologies to Atwood, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. She says something like in this country, the animals have the faces of humans. And then later on, she says in this country, the animals have the faces of animals. And I really loved that as a concept uh, for the way that we anthropomorphise and, and place our wants and needs onto the faces of other animals. And then later on, as we get to know them, we realise that hopefully we realise if you if you do strike up a, rela- a proper relationship with another animal that, of course, they have their own lives, uh, their own agency, uh, their own wants and needs. They are born, they live and they die, and that doesn't really have everything to do with us, or often it doesn't have anything to do with us. So I thought that that poem, even though that poem is about roadkill, it, it uh, you know, it, it spoke to me for the themes that I was trying to work through in the novel. And then at one point I realised that I just loved the title <laughs> and I really wanted to borrow it, um, and luckily we can do that. But it is actually the name of, of that poetry collection as well. Atwood's poetry is beautiful and, you know, doesn't get enough enough air i think
0: yeah yeah i mean uh, she's uh, very famous but um i think not so much for her poetry mostly for her um speculative fiction she's written a lot of speculative fiction um, um but anyways uh okay cool so um I, I i think it would be good for listeners to have a sense of just um how the book goes <laughs> before we get into uh, some of the themes and things like that so uh, if you don't mind could you just describe the book's plot and and some of the book's main characters
1: Sure. So uh, the novel is told from the perspective of a woman called Jean. And Jean is 51. She loves a smoke and a drink. And she loves to do these while driving around in her car. She doesn't get along with people very well, but she works in a wildlife park, which is run by her uh, daughter-in-law. And her little granddaughter, Kimberly, who she absolutely adores, lives there too. And Jean spends her time, when she's not looking after Kimberly, talking to the other animals in the park. And at the time, they don't talk back, but she uh, makes up voices for them and she sort of passes a lot of time like this. But when this strange new flu called zoo flu rips through and uh, she finally gets the ability to understand what other animal bodies are saying, of course, they are not saying what she or anybody else wants them to. You know, the dogs aren't saying, I love you. They are talking about life and sex and death and and their violent and often very captive lives. And that's quite horrifying to, uh, to Jean and everyone else who's infected. And the way the flu goes is that at first, humans can understand what uh, mammals are saying. And then, just like with COVID, where some people would get worse symptoms and, and other people, for other people it was mild, people with worse symptoms will start to understand reptiles and maybe fish. And then it really gets heightened when people can understand insects. That's when people start to lose it because you can imagine what it would be like if every insect <laughs> that you see outside um, is is trying to communicate with you. So um, as the novel progresses, uh, Jean meets... Uh, a dingo called Sue and well she's always she's always sort of loved this dingo um, who's in the park but once once they start to communicate their relationship starts to change and they go on a road trip down through the country uh, to search for her granddaughter who has been taken by her son and it's been described a bit as a as a Thelma and the Lu- interspecies Thelma and Louise story with these two females of their species who have had a really hard time trying to communicate with each other through this apocalyptic landscape and there are other parts which I won't reveal yet
0: <laughs> <laughs> well maybe we'll uh we'll talk end up talking about them anyways um you I mean yeah you just described the in mean, generally the plot of the book um but um so we are, you know, one of the things i was asking myself when i was when i was reading the book is um wh- whether th- it's it's a matter of interpretation what the journey conflict phase of the book is or whether there's two journey conflict phases um so i mean uh, it seems to me that when reading the book it could be the case that the the journey conflict phase is just um the zoo flu itself um how it affects people's lives. Um, you know, it creates this relationship between Gene um, uh, uh, and Sue the dingo that um, it existed before, but I mean, it, it becomes really quite different once they're able to communicate with each other better. Um, and, uh, and, and I mean, the Zufu also just like completely, tra- it just it mu- changes society quite dramatically and, um, and it just, and the changes just keep getting sort of bigger and bigger as, as people's symptoms get um, worse, so to speak, as they, as they, Come to be able to communicate with more and more animals, um, so I mean it, it's possible that that's the journey conflict phase. It's just the way the zooflu flu um, changes um, Jean, Jean's life and the and the lives of the people around her, and also society and and the sort of progress the, the way the way that things progress um, due to the zoo flu. Um, but alternatively, um, and maybe more um, sort of simply, one could just say, well, the the journey conflict phase is when um, Kim. Uh, uh, Jean's granddaughter is taken by Lee, uh, uh, Lee, Lee, Lee being Kim's um, father and, um, and then Sue and um, Jean sort of go after them and, and go on this journey, this very physical journey, trying to, trying to find Kim. And then, you know, eventually they do. And there's, there's tragedy. Uh, Lee ends up, Lee ends up drowning um, and uh, Kim is found, but she ends up ha- sort of getting taken away by, by the police and then brought home by them. And, um, but but anyways, I, I, I yeah I was just wondering about this. Um, so what was this? Am, am, what's the right way to understand this? Were, were you did you have were you planning something here, or am am I just making a discovery, or I I, I really don't know.
1: <laughs> no, it's um, really fascinating to talk about this aspect. I mean, the zoo flu pandemic aspect was always a plot device, which is why it's so strange that it has become. You know, such a huge topic in the book because of what we're all going through in this period of time. Uh, so I needed a whole heap of characters to collectively be able to understand other animals, <laughs> and a uh, a flu or a pandemic is a is a really classic trope for doing that. But also, I'd worked as an aid worker uh, in a past life, and I'd worked on um, on emergencies. Like, uh, like the SARS virus. So I, I knew the basic trajectory of of what a pandemic or an epidemic looked like. So it was very natural for me to go that way. Similarly, um, you know, with the plot and and um, the the kidnapping. Uh, I mean, it's strange because they're plot devices, and I did put them in there, and I did use them. But I I didn't do much sort of mapping out. It, they sort of unfolded naturally, I suppose, in the writing of the book. What I did spend a lot of time on was uh, going back to what I call a power edit. So I had the novel um, and its basic structure, and you know, and and things like um, the road trip and trying to find the granddaughter again, all in there. But the problem was that the humans and the other animals were, even though they were speaking on the page or communicating, they weren't really speaking to each other and there wasn't really um, any tension or <laughs> reason for them to just be chatting away. So I, what I did was I mapped very carefully this idea that Jean is a very sort of communicating person at the start of the book and the other animals, although they make noise, um, are sort of silenced in there in their institutional uh, way, or they just make noises that the humans don't understand, then as the animals start to communicate more, Jean becomes quieter in a way. She's still obviously narrating the book, but, but there's definitely a power shift in the way that language is used. And that's even charted in the way that Jean is translating Sue the Dingo's uh, communication especially. So at the start when Jean starts talking to Sue, she thinks that Sue is calling her queen. It's a very imperial interpretation because, uh, of course, Australia is a colonised country, um, and and I'm a, co- a coloniser in that country. And the character of Jean is also. A white colonising character, so she's 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 thinking, oh great, um, this this dingo's calling me queen. You know, I must be so fantastic. And then as she gets to know Sue, she's she interprets it a different way. Oh, she's not calling me queen, but she's calling me mother. Okay, that's interesting. Oh, she's not calling me mother. She's calling me it. Oh, she's calling me lickspittle. Oh, now she's calling me bitch. Um, and then the greatest insult for a dingo is to call Gene um, cat dog. <laughs> Lowest of low. Um, so as as the language uh, understanding increases in Gene. Um, the less her power becomes until she's very very reliant on Sue. Sue in the end is getting food for Jean um, you know cleaning up her wounds um, you know biting her if she if she does the wrong thing and generally keeping her in line and trying to make Jean really into a good dingo which Jean can never live up to.
0: Okay okay so I was it it, it sounds like I was wrong about both of both of the possible journeys that I had in mind. I mean, I, I wasn't completely off, but but you think the really the journey is the um, uh, relationship between between Sue and Jean, and particularly the way the power dynamics between them change over time due to language.
1: That's right. But that's what I love about novels and people reading novels is that, that different people will read different structures and different journeys. And, and that's intentional too. There are, you're right, Kyle, there are a number of different ways you can, you can read that journey. And uh, th- you know, the, the flu definitely follows its own track through the novel as well.
0: Okay. Well um, yeah. So this, this zoo flu is um, uh, may- maybe the main idea in the book. Um it's what makes your or i don't know about the main idea but it's um it's it's the thing in your book that makes it a work of speculative fiction like the the deviation from reality that um that um, makes australia um not entirely um i don't want to use the word i don't want to say not entirely real but uh slightly different from from the the australia that that we're used to Mm -hmm. um so uh, I was hoping you could explain the, the zoo flu's symptoms and its uh, its broader effects on society.
1: Mm. So I felt like you write about the fact that that's what makes it speculative. I felt that I was writing two novels, really. I was writing a gritty realist fiction where there's a woman and she's having a bad divorce and she's got a dependence on on um, drugs and alcohol and you know she's just generally having a hard time, and she narrates. And then there's this speculative fiction book, which is where people can talk to other animals. <laughs> uh, so, so bringing those two books together was part of of the difficulty. And the zoo flu really, really helped me to do that. So, as I mentioned, I was very sick. Uh, in the initial writing of this. And the disease that I had, chikungunya. not much was known about it in Australia. In other places, um, it was quite prevalent, but I, it took me five weeks to get diagnosed. Um, you know, I was handed some Panadol and <laughs> and told good luck, really. And so I did quite a bit of research about it myself. And so it felt very natural for me to also create this fake body of research for zoo flu, the, the imaginative, imaginative disease that I was concocting. So I wrote a Wikipedia page, um, not published, <laughs> just for myself, um, which is quite lengthy, which charts um, where zoo flu comes from and, you know, what its symptoms are. Um, so basically uh, people catch this flu in a very similar way to the way that people catch COVID, um, and when it starts, there are general flu-like symptoms. Um, one of those symptoms includes conjunctivitis, though. So people in the novel are walking around with these blazing red eyes. Um, so you can imagine that's sort of quite creepy and and zombie-like, and also very obvious—a um, very obvious symptom uh, for for you know trying to work out if other people have it. So a lot of the characters in the novel will wear sunglasses to try to conceal the fact that they're ill, and that's a really um, marked trait of Lee, um, the main protagonist's son, the one who ends up kidnapping uh, the granddaughter. He shows up with these mirrored sunglasses and um, it becomes very obvious that that he's quite sick, especially when he starts talking to mice. <laughs> So as this uh, disease progresses um, and people become sicker, they start to uh, they start to become aware, I guess, of the extraordinary other communications that animals are are putting out there that we might not all, always pick up on. So one of the key scenes for Jean realizing that she's sick is that she goes into an area of the zoo where mice are kept. Um, and they are bred there for for feeding of the other animals. So in most zoos that you would go to, there's an there's an area where there will be mice or some sort of other creature raised for food, and there's a little gas chamber in there. So they basically are born, live and die in this little back place in a zoo, and then they're they're gassed and fed to the raptors or or the snakes. Uh, so Jean. Um, Jean is starting to sort of get this sense that there's communication coming from this room, but she doesn't think that it's the mice. She just thinks it's someone else, you know, another human talking. And um, what I found out in my research is that mice release a gas as part of their communication. So their little bodies will release this gas and that will sort of let other mice know you know, perhaps that there's danger or, um, that something's going on. So Jean starts to perceive this gas and the gas is saying run. And she's, she's like, you know, what, you know, who said that? What What's going on? And, um, and she can just, you know, perceive that there's this, this, being saying, run, run, until she realizes that all these little mice are just yelling at her to run. So she starts running and that's when she starts running through this wildlife park and realizing that all these different mammals uh, are sort of talking to her.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so the, yeah, the, the, the zoo flu, it, it affects, I uh, mean, uh, gene uh, quite a lot. I mean, it, it, ch- it changes her life. Um, and, uh, and, and everybody else. Um, the, I mean, I, 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 have this kind of like list of, of those kinds of effects it seems to have in the book. I, I don't know if we need to, to sort of go through all of it, but, um, I mean, so it's, it's, it's very disruptive, um, of, of society. Um, the, uh, I mean, and 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 in in that way, it's it's similar to I guess the way other epidemics and pandemics can be, um, but it's 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 not disruptive because it makes people sick. Really, um, I mean, I guess you could say that um, there's a sense in which. People people kind of get sick later on because because their lives are so negatively affected or something like that. But um, really really the only way people get sick is yeah they're so their their eyes change color and um, may, they feel a little bit off for like the first couple of days or something like that. Um, and then after that the effects of the flu are are mostly just um, um, really it's 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 almost it's not really the flu that's affecting people. So if the flu gives people the ability to communicate with animals, but it's the communicating with animals that really throws people off. Um, and so, um, but because everything's so disruptive, um, governments and whatnot are treating this disease as something that is really problematic. It warrants border clo- border closures and quarantining, even though it's not a disease that is um, incapacitating people or killing people. I mean, it's it's really quite benign in terms of the effect it has on, on people's health. Um, I, thought, I thought that was interesting that it's so incredibly disruptive, even though it doesn't really seem to make people sick Um yeah.
1: yeah, you're right. I mean, I guess I was charting um, the disease that I had in a way or mimicking that in the book, because what I had, there was this very, very extreme fever and then the turning bright red <laughs> and then the skin peeling off. But after that, you're really just left with this, well, fatigue and and polyarthritis. So this sort of bone Breaking feeling all through your body, which, you know, obviously is (laughs) very incapacitating, but it was quite different to, you know, the initial symptoms. And you're right, zoo flu, you know, people have cold and flu symptoms and there's the red eyes, but it really is the communication, um, this enhanced communication that that is so disruptive. And at first, when I was first writing it, I thought that would be a really wonderful thing. Like, wouldn't it be quite fun to be able to go out and and talk to birds and and cats in the street and and lizards, you know, that would be really amazing. But I mentioned it to my partner and he said, no, it, it would be the end of the world, you know, and, you know, it would be the worst thing that could possibly happen because if we understood what other animals were saying to us, we would also realize what we're doing to them, <laughs> and because they would tell us, and that would drive us all, you know, absolutely around the bend. Um, and a lot of people in the novel can't handle it. I mean, it's similar to the to the way that that we see what we see with um, with the pandemic that we're facing now. You know, some people um, have you know, really, it's really exacerbated their mental health issues um, for other people it's changed the way that they've related to, you know, out in the world. Um, some people really enjoyed, you know, people in sort of more privileged positions or in in places where maybe they're around a lot of greenery. Some people really, really enjoyed going back to gardening and baking bread, <laughs> you know. So, and it's the same with the zoo flu. Some people are, are really, really loving it and seeking, you know, stranger and, and weirder animals. And and one of the characters, Lee, which is the protagonist's son, you know, he's he's kind of a a, a communication seeker. Like he's going off to find out what whales say. Um, he's going around the world, you know, the sorry the country with these you know these hippie ideals you know, trying to communicate with as many animals as he can and he wants his daughter to experience that too. But then there are other people who are doing trepanning and drilling holes in their heads, which is a really old-fashioned way to try to release uh, pain and evil spirits, and they're going back to that because they believe that if they drill holes in their heads maybe that communication aspect will be released and they won't have to be subject to this constant barrage of of understanding. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, that that sounds right. Um, from what I remember of the book, um, what um, so I, okay? Here's here's another thing that it uh, or another effect it it seemed to have, or I I think it had. Um, so it seemed to me that the um, the zoo flu made people's attitudes towards animals um, much more consistent than they normally are, um, and and then it went. It could go in either direction, sort of. So. Um, uh, it's pretty, uh, I guess, standard for people to be speciesist, not just in the sense that they um, champion the interests of human beings over animals. That's that's one type of speciesism. Um, but people also uh, often champion the interests of some animals over others. Um, in particular, we have a tendency to cha- to pr- prioritize the interests of companion animals and to neglect the interests of um, of farmed animals. Um, for for example, um, and it, yeah, it seems like that sort of um, speciesism with respect to the way the interests of different types of animals are treated, um, that speciesism kind of goes away a little bit because of, or a lot, because of the zoo flu. So, I mean, some people end up basically becoming liberationists. They decide that what we're doing to farmed animals is intolerable. And so a lot of people go around releasing farmed animals, um, uh, uh, maybe maybe misguidedly, because I'm not sure that the farmed animals are doing that great after being released, but at least it, there was the effort to release them was well-intentioned. Um, so some people become liberationists um, and, and achieve consistency that way. But other people go in the other direction and they just decide, uh, well, we're we're hungry and there's all these uh, companion animals roaming around. We're going to start eating companion animals <laughs> and so treating them like like farmed animals that way. But but yeah, so consistency, but but in the other direction where where now companion animals are being their interests are being neglected to the to the same extent that farmed animals' interests were by by that group of people. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, but but what do you think? Is this? <laughs> um, yeah,
1: um, yeah, I'd never really thought about it in that way, but but you're right. I guess there is sort of, I guess language brings a slightly more even playing field. Not not necessarily that humans think that other animals are equal to them, because. Um, Humans tend to <laughs> centre themselves um, in this world, uh, no matter what circumstances they're in. Uh, but perhaps there is a little bit more of a, an evening out of of those categories of animals. So, you know, if a rat is communicating intensively with you, as as intensively as uh, you know your pet dog, then is you know, is, there a, is that difference sort of eradicated? Uh, is that rat still vermin and, and something to be uh, killed immediately um, if, it's, if it's obviously communicating and, and expressing its full life at you? And in the same way, um, is a dog any different to a cow in terms of the way that humans might want to consume an animal? Uh, I mean in you know we're talking from a, a very sort of westernized perspective here, of course, dogs and cows aren't <laughs> different, but this is the way that they're perceived in in this particularly um, you know white Australian concept um, sort of construct. There is a scene um, and this scene really gets mentioned to me quite a bit um, especially by people I suppose who eat pigs. Uh, there's a scene where um, uh, a truckload of pigs is is pulled up on the highway and Jean and the dingo sue are trying to get past so they can continue their road journey. But the people driving the truck can't bear to be inside the truck anymore because they can hear the pigs communicating to them and the pigs are calling out, um, you know, more, more, more. Um, you know, there must be more. They're basically saying there must be more to this life than, you know, the, what, what we're in. And the people driving the truck end up just fleeing. They just can't stand it anymore. And Jean goes up and, and frees the pigs and watches the pigs go out and experience grass and mud and air and wind um, and the outside for the first time in their lives. And, I mean, everybody's seen the, the, the conditions that, Factory farmed pigs lived in. There's, you know, rarely people who haven't seen that sort of footage. But I think maybe having it play out fictionally, and also having that language barrier taken away, and and so the pigs are are very much expressing themselves, perhaps really affects people. And we saw that in the movie um, Babe, uh, which um, is a movie that came. When did Babe come out? I can't. I can't quite remember. Maybe it was the 90s or early 2000s? I, th-
0: I think something like that, yeah.
1: Yeah, and that movie had a huge effect on people. So if anyone who hasn't seen Babe, it's it's the story of the talking pig. It's about a pig who who can talk and and is on this farm. And there's a lot of messages in there about about the place of a pig on a farm and and what a pig is um, for. In in human terms, and then this pig sort of communicates his way out of out of that experience. But that had a huge effect on on pork sales in the U.S. They absolutely plummeted. Suddenly, children did not want to be eating Babe. Uh, so, it, you know, on the on the sort of national consciousness, it was it was massively um, affecting. And I think there is something particularly about pigs that that is very, very um, confusing to people in terms of eating because, I mean, because they are documented as creatures that are a lot more similar to us and to the dogs um, (laughs) that we live with um, maybe than other animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? um so uh, and yeah you, you we touched on it when you mentioned that uh gene's ability to understand sue I- improves in time uh, her interpretation of what sue is sue is saying changes as the book progresses and becomes um i guess more accurate um but but yeah so the yeah the Sufu flu gives people the capacity to understand animals but it's it's it really is kind of just a capacity it's it's um and by that i mean like so we, you know, one can be born with a capacity for something or have a capacity for something, but unless one puts practices or puts some effort into realizing the capacity, that capacity will remain undeveloped. Um, and it seems like that's, that's what is the case here with, with people with the zoo flu. They're given this capacity, capacity to um, understand animals, but at first, um, people are really bad at it, and uh, they only get better at it if they um, let themselves um, communicate with animals and really put some thought into trying to understand um and in particular Kimberly at first was was pretty good at understanding and um and Jean was not very good at understanding. She was just confused all the time at first. Um <laughs> yeah. I, I, was cur- I was curious about this.
1: Yeah. So it seemed really natural for me to depict children as being being people who could more easily Understand what the animals were saying. I mean, we see this in children from an early age. A lot of kids' books um, have talking animals in them. Um, children have a very special, often have a very special relationship with other animals. Um, they, you know, hold them in high esteem, in great affection, and and consider them really as as you know, equal <laughs> in in their world. And as they grow up, they're sort of taught. Um, that, that certain animals are to be placed in certain categories. You know, some we eat, some we have as companions, others we we eradicate because we consider them vermin. So it was really natural um, to me um, when the zoo flu was becoming more, more prevalent in this fictional world that it would be children who would understand the animals best and have to explain them to animals. Sorry to, to the other characters. So, um, as when when people first get the zoo flu you're right, there's this sort of cacophony of of language and um, misunderstanding and just a general confusion of words. And Jean gets quite annoyed because the animals aren't making any sense. You know, what's the point of being able to talk to other animals if you can't even really (laughs) comprehend what they're saying? And then Kimberly, her granddaughter, pulls her up and says, you're not looking at the whole animal, the whole body. You you can't just look at bits of the animal uh, and expect to understand what, they're saying you need to look at this whole animal and see how a tail moving, a small smell from their armpits or or their bum, you know, a, a, an ear twitching, a claw scraping is all a communication. And if you look at the whole picture of that, it it starts to make sense and form sentences and and you know become quite clear. And that was a bit of a pointed reference, also to the way that we take apart animals as well. Like, how can we, how can we understand what an animal is if the way that we encounter it mostly is in pieces in the supermarket? Um, you know, you just see a, a bit of a bit of a thigh, or um, you know, uh, the the only animals that we really see whole in that way are sometimes whole. You might see a whole fish, but even then, you know, it's had parts of its body taken out. So the idea was that um, you know, if we look at a whole animal, maybe we'll start to understand, um, you know, what you know, what they are and who they are in mm-hmm. this world.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> so I, I get this is I guess this is a, a related question. Um. The uh, so the the words that the animals use are um are interesting. Um. Uh, I guess some of it's maybe straightforward enough um, so uh, dingoes sue so, the dingo but also other dingoes um, at least seem to be using uh, hierarch- hierarchical language throughout a, a lot of the book um, Jean thinks yeah gene thinks that she's being called queen at least at the beginning um, and um, some another interesting uh, uh, use of language that you also I think mentioned earlier is um, uh, if the animals seem to be using object language. So, so, um, animals and not just su the dingo, I think animals, and I seem to remember animals in general, usually referring to human beings as, um, as it rather than as, um, she, or as he. Um, so, um, and, and that's interesting. I, maybe in part because, um, hum, human beings conventionally at least refer to animals using object language as well. Um, we are, we're conventionally calling, um, animals, uh, you know, it rather than, than she or she or he. Um, so I, I just, I just noticed this, but I didn't really know um, what to make of it. Um, <laughs> another cool thing I, uh, about a point of, or a piece of language that I thought was neat was um, Sue the dingo and, and maybe some other animals too. I can't remember. Um, they say yesterday and tomorrow a lot, um, but they're not referring to yesterday or tomorrow. They're talking about um. some, they're, 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 they, they mean something else. Like I, and I, and I, I wasn't always quite able to tell what I think, I think tomorrow meant something like, goals or something like that um and and i wasn't always sure what yesterday meant but anyways i was i was yeah i was wondering if you were uh if if you if you'd be willing to comment on some of these word choices
1: yeah so you're right i really uh was making a little poke at humans for calling animals eat all the time and i wanted to reverse that and i've found that it really strikes people it's it's slightly shocking to be called it <laughs> um and and so that's a nice little sort of power reversal thing there uh in terms of the yesterday and tomorrow um sue calls uh sue sue the dingo calls jean the human um yesterday um referring to the fact that she's quite old she's past it she smells old you know she's um you know uh, she's the product of yesterday and she and the dingo also thinks of kimberly the child as tomorrow so she smells new she's um she's a fresh thing she's the future i mean it's quite a subtle thing and it's not really necessary for every reader to pick that up it can just be part of the fabric of the language but in my understanding that's that's what um, is happening there, and Sue was a really funny um, character to write because I always wanted her to remain slightly mysterious in the text, and that's quite a hard thing for an author to do because you really want to have control. <laughs> you know you've made these these characters up. You've made up this entire world, you know you're supposed to have complete control over the text. but I did want her to remain slightly unknowable and retain that wonderment uh, that we do have when we go out and stare at other animals, especially wild animals in the world. So it was quite um, an interesting test for me to never make her completely comprehensible uh, to the reader or to myself. And I have a wonderful publisher at Scribe Australia who was really, really passionate about that aspect as well. She didn't want... The animals to be the answer to human problems, to solve all the mysteries of the world, to be, uh, to fall into this classic, um, you know, uh, conversation that we usually see with with animals in texts. She wanted them to be uh, quite non-human and to retain that strangeness, and so that was really exciting to work with her on the dialogue. I remember going into her office. For a meeting and we had sort of a two-hour friendly debate about, you know, how insects should talk on a page <laughs> and how that might be rendered in the text. And, you know, that's really beautiful to have somebody else who is as passionate about the wonderment of the non-human world as you are.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I felt I felt like um, as I went through the book reading what different animals were, were saying, um, it was sort of like – it was i felt like it was there was this invitation maybe to the reader to maybe dwell for a while and think about try and figure out what exactly the animals meant sometimes it was clear enough i think but other times it was not very clear and you could kind of sit there and and think for i don't know 10 minutes just trying to figure out what the animal was saying and um but but also like it was perfectly fine to just not do that and you could just keep reading and uh it was was sort of like it was it was a little i don't know like optional engagement or something like that for for the reader
1: yeah that's right i want it to be able to flow over the reader but I also want other readers to be able to sit and consider and try to translate, I suppose, uh, what is going on in this page. It was really interesting recently, um, the book's getting translated into a couple of languages and one translator contacted me and was trying to translate this strange, um, awkward Animal poetry <laughs> into another language, and was asking me what's well, what does this mean? You know, what does sky meat mean? You know, and I'm saying, well, sky meat is the dingo's way of of saying there's a bird. <laughs> you know, but but you know, um, it was really really interesting trying to explain um, many many aspects of of what the animal characters are saying to someone so that they could then translate it into something that was. Vaguely comprehensible in their language, but also still retained that, that sense of unknowing.
0: <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, that 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 must be interesting to go through. Wow. Um. Okay. Um. <clears throat> so, what what, what a, a theme that's present in the book that I thought was really um I- interesting is, uh, yeah, the, the the idea that it's um kind of crazy to try and figure out um what animals are saying. Um, and this this theme is present at the beginning of the book but it also is present just throughout the book and um, at first the the thought is just um, so this before you know before the zoo flu uh, epidemic occurs um, the thought was just that well um, Jean and Jean and Kimberly are, are acting a little funny in in uh, as- trying to as- ascribe meaning to what animals are saying either because, um, Animals just don't mean anything, <laughs> uh, allegedly, or or because if they do mean something, we could never know what it is, and so you're either way you're anthropomorphizing them, um, or at least that was the thought that Angela expresses. Um, uh, Kim's mother expresses in criticism of Gene, um, but then later on, um, the zoo flu epidemic occurs. People actually do get the ability to understand animals, kind of, and um, so it turns out that as far as anyone can tell, animals do mean things. They're like they're, they're sounds and what and and. And other things they do um, seem to carry linguistic meaning. Um, and furthermore, not only do they, are they just meaning things. We can, through practice at least, um, tell what they mean. We can actually figure out what they mean. Um, and still, even after that, it's still thought to be crazy to try and understand animals. Um, not not because you're anthropomorphizing them anymore, but because it's just crazy <laughs> or something. Um, I, I thought that was that was neat that the throughout the book, no, sort of no matter what, people are crazy if they try to understand animals.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's this sense that, that we try to retain some sort of um, normality, even in the face of an animal apocalypse. (laughs) And we could, we could see that, I think, playing out um, with, with the COVID pandemic as well. You know, um, I remember, I remember, so New Zealand had at the time, had one of the harshest lockdowns in the world. We really, uh, you know, it was one of the earliest and harshest. And I was living there, and and um, as we were going into lockdown, basically, I went out and tried to, um, you know, gather food <laughs> for my household. Um, and we didn't know what we were going into or for how long it, it was to last many months. Um, and. I remember someone contacting me I think that evening just as we in that night we were we were the whole country was going to go into the most severe lockdown in the world and someone contacting me and saying oh um could you could you get that thing done you know all those all those things read by tomorrow someone from work and I wrote back to them and said oh I'm kind of like preparing for the global pandemic at the moment like aren't you <laughs> and they said oh yes like I I don't worry i tend to catastrophize too but you know i'm sure it will all be fine um, and i just remember thinking this is so bizarre that this extraordinary thing is happening something that no one you know within within um, you know, living memory in in my culture um, has gone through, and yet people are just business as usual. They're still doing their work. They're still trying to carry on as though, um, you know, no, nothing is occurring. And I suppose that plays out in in the novel as well. You know, we want to try to retain this sense that, you know, humans are very rational, and we're just going to go ahead pretending that that insect over there isn't screaming. <laughs> From the tree, these obscene <laughs> things, um, and and just try to pretend that that everything's fine, and and there still is a sense of that, I think, and you know, it's necessary, I think, for governments to just go, okay, it's going to be okay, we'll just we'll just get through this and get back to usual, and you know, no, you don't have to wear a mask, or actually, yes, you do, um, <laughs> um, and and meanwhile, you know, much of the world has experienced COVID. There are so many people going through long COVID and unknown symptoms and it's really affecting their work and families and and, um, and and many many aspects of our lives and yet we're supposed to still uh, produce the same amount of work <laughs> to, to cope with you know a, a lot less money and a lot less physical capacity and so I, I guess that was something that you know there were th- <laughs> there were things that I, I definitely got wrong in like little talking marks in terms of you know the way that our pandemic might play out f- you know, even in a fictional setting. But I think in terms of the way that, that the government sort of, or some people expect to just carry on um, as usual, even when something absolutely extraordinary is happening, you know, is something I really wanted to bring out.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, So a related thought. Um, it, it seemed to me that there was a kind of hierarchy of craziness with respect to, um trying to understand animals so um trying to understand animals was something people you know the the norm was you shouldn't do that um if you're doing it it's a problem um it's a problem if you try to talk to mammals (laughs) but but that's that's a sort of low level problem if you're trying to understand other things that aren't mammals like birds or lizards that's even weirder even crazier you're you're further down the crazy ladder or scale or whatever um, and then, yeah, i trying to talk to insects or understand what insects are saying is as crazy, that's as crazy as it gets. You're just, you're too far, you're almost beyond help now. Um, yeah. Um, and that, that, so that was interesting. And it also, it seemed to me that that hierarchy tracked um, some of the attitudes people have towards different cat- different kinds of animals. I think people often accord like a, a higher level of moral status to mammals and then a lower level of moral status to, um, say, birds and lizards and whatnot, and then an even lower level of moral status to insects. And, um, and But yeah, so... But, um, I, I'm. I'm not. Yeah. You know, this isn't really a question, I guess, but I'm just. It's an observation. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, as the disease progresses, um, you know, as people get sicker, they start to, you know, go outside of their. So we're mammals, and and it seemed natural that that the characters would would relate to other mammals first of all, and then as as they get sicker, um, you know, some people. Will understand what birds are saying, and some people will understand what insects are saying. Um, depending on how sick you are, really, is is the way that that charts. But it really is interesting that categorization because I think we do sort of place more importance um, and value and and believe that other mammals are more intelligent than, say, um, a fly. <laughs> but but we you know when we think about um, cows in our society. Um, you know, and again, I'm talking about um, an anglo western western culture, obviously in other cultures like in in India, cows are considered very very differently um, but in in uh, you know in in North America and in Australia, certainly you know cows uh, especially dairy cattle, are uh, one of the most um, traumatized and brutalized creatures that I could think of actually, and they're these massive mammals, uh, um, you know, these massive um, female mammals that we might otherwise very much relate to, but somehow it's is okay to, to treat them in absolutely the worst possible way. I mean, you know, a, a beef cow is, is treated quite well in comparison to a dairy cow who's impregnated over and over again because, of course, to produce in order to produce milk um, uh, a mammal needs to become pregnant and so a cow is impregnated and has their has their um, calves taken away over and over and over again until their body is is exhausted and useless and then they're killed. Um, so in the in the scene there's a scene where Jean goes back to the farm where her ex lives and she comes across a whole heap of dairy cows and the cows of course communicate with her and they're saying, you know, Have you seen our babies? Where are they? Um, You know, someone like you took them away, kind of thing. But in that scene, the cows are very angry. And it took me a long time to get to that because when we see a cow in a field, either we see a few different things. We see beauty, perhaps, like, oh, there's a beautiful cow in a beautiful green field and it's going to create beautiful milk. And that's, you know, a very healthy, lovely scene. Or we might see a very sad creature. You know, cows carry a certain grief to them, I think. Um, You know, and it's because they are perpetually grieving and, you know, and, and they can't walk very well either because of the way they're, they're bred. So they're sort of, you know, they look like pained, grieved creatures, but it was really sort of, um, I guess, exciting to me to give these cows anger. They are really, really angry in my text. And I think that's quite an unusual perhaps depiction, or at least for me, it wasn't a depiction that I would have come to, naturally um i had to really really think about it like how would i feel if i was that cow eventually i would be really 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 peeved mm-hmm. and want to express that
0: <laughs> yeah 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 um i it that it, it seemed to fit um when i when i was reading it i was like oh that seems plausible that cows would feel this way um especially because um like we, we know that cows are yeah cows are cognitively quite sophisticated and uh there's um uh, You know, it it seems perfectly plausible that they would remember that their children had been taken away from them, that they'd feel bad about it, but also maybe blame people um, like that. Yeah,
1: Mm -hmm. even if not in the way that we would conceive of of what remembering is. You know, they might not remember the particular moment or the particular scene, but it seems very conceivable that they would see a human and get that feeling and know that something bad happens (laughs) to connect. That's very, very connected with. Their motherhood, um, when that that other mammal on two legs comes towards them, you know they're either going to be hooked up to machines or taken away, or someone that they that they value gets taken away, sort of thing. That you know, there's that feeling there. That's not that's not out of um, out of um, comprehension for us. I think to to believe that that memory and understanding works differently for animals, but it's still there in it, but just in a different way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, this is, um, this is my last, I guess, like major question, and then we'll, 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 we'll finish up. Um, but so there, there's a number of um, analogies in the book um, and we, we already kind of talked about, um, well, metaphor um, and I guess metaphor and analogies are slightly different, but, but they're eh, well similar maybe. Um, <clears throat> anyways, there's, yeah, there's a number of, of neat analogies in the book. Um, uh, Jean's son, Lee. Um, has a, offers a couple of analogies um, uh, that are perhaps useful for understanding animals. Um, so, one, one analogy he makes is uh, he suggests that animals in zoos are analogous to um, human prison inmates. Um, not just in that their liberty has been restricted, but in that they're psychologically they're similar because they've they're both they've both been institutionalized. Um, they're both, um, I guess, interacting with the same individuals all the time, um, being fed. Um, they don't get to exercise their agency. Um, there's this dependency um, and that changes the way they think. Um, and a- another interesting analogy he makes is um, between um, dolls and um, and domesticated animals. Um, do- domesticated animals are a bit like um, dolls that have had their parts taken off and then switched with other doll parts, and um, yeah, I think I think a lot of children do that with their with their dolls. Yes, sort of I take certainly apart. Did. <laughs> Yeah, I I did too, and I I had I wouldn't have called them dolls. I would have been like their action figures. They're masculine, um, but I did I did that with my action figures, and it was a lot of fun. Um,
1: yeah, then... my Barbie dolls always had monster heads, and
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> um, and uh, and Jean uh, discusses an analogy at one point, but she um. She kind of, she's, she's ambivalent with respect to it. So she uh, considers the analogy between factory farming and Nazi concentration camps, which is, I think, um, an oft used analogy um, to, um, to try and, you know, people try and use this to illustrate what's what's so bad about factory farming. Um, and um, in the past, she wasn't, she, she notes that in the past, she hadn't been sympathetic to the analogy at all. She used to think of it as just being racist. And she doesn't think that anymore, but she still thinks it's not a very good analogy, Um um, yeah, so I, I, was, I, I was wondering if you could speak to these analogies, but, but also um, if, you, if you want to um, maybe speak to just the general use of analogies, human, human analogies, to try and better understand um, animals.
1: Well, I guess, um, I guess it comes back to the idea of anthropomorphism in a way, um, which is, of course, us projecting human traits. Traditionally, it was us projecting human traits onto gods. Uh, but we can project those human traits onto onto inanimate objects and and particularly animals, and it's something that has really been frowned on in the scientific community. Um, Jane Goodall, when when she was a very young researcher in the in the jungles of Tanzania, would send back reports saying. You know, oh, you know, Bobo was was angry today, and she would get absolutely slammed by it um, from from the more senior scientists saying, you know, you can't you can't say that Bobo was angry. Bobo doesn't have anger, you know, that's unscientific. But of course, Jane Goodall is now Jane Goodall, <laughs> and probably is, you know one of the you know is definitely um, one of the most famous researchers in this area in the world, and and you know has shown through her her compassion and and her her leap of understanding and in trying to trying to understand other animals through these human traits that you know a lot of amazing scientific rigorous scientific work can be done uh, so and i think i always think that anthropomorphism is just a very very basic human way of trying to understand creatures that have Often have abilities much more extraordinary than ours. We don't have sonar. We can't fly. We can't live underwater. We don't have an incredible um, olfactory um, center in our the front of our brain like dogs do that processes smell. Um, you know, beyond our our wildest dreams. We we're very limited. We have short noses we can barely swim, we can't fly, we can't really do much. We're very, very focused on um, the idea that we are, you know, that language is everything and that what we see is, you know, is a very heightened experience, but but that's just our limitation. And I really think that that humans, when they anthropomorphise, when they say, oh, the dog is guilty, the dog is happy, the dog is sad, the dog loves me, it's just our very, very basic way of trying to connect with these extraordinary creatures that we share this planet with. So I don't really think it's a problem. And so when we when we have these analogies, that's exactly the same thing. Um, you know, I, I was really interested in the idea of animals being um, institutionalised. Uh, I was lucky enough to get a artist in residence um, to become part of an artist in residence program in a wildlife park in the Northern Territory of Australia. And I was living inside the wildlife park. And I would be there in my caravan at night, which was parked very close to uh, the enclosure that a barking owl. Uh, which is a type of owl in Australia, uh, was enclosed in. And I was really struck by the way that the barking owl in the cage would call out to the wild barking owls overhead. So you'd hear this woof, woof from the cage and then overhead a corresponding woof, woof as they called out to each other, this very wild creature and this very captive creature um, still communicating with each other. And and seeing these creatures um, in their enclosures uh, very much reliant as, as people are in institutions on, you know, the time that the food comes and routine and who's going to visit when and change is really shocking. Um, and then seeing their wild counterparts just roaming around, you know, living, living their full lives was really striking and interesting to me. And another thing that I was taught at the wildlife park, um, when I was hanging out with the dingoes there and obviously they influenced the book greatly, um, there was one dingo who was allowed out sort of on on a lead and I went and, so, I mean, dingoes, if you ever meet one, they are just, you know, they are f- the most extraordinary looking um, creatures. They're just so, their pelt is like, it's like vanilla, like, and they're so fluffy and they're, they're just beautiful. And so I really wanted to cuddle up next to this big fluffy dog, you know, and uh, you know, who seemed quite tame and was very friendly. And a ranger came past and said, that's a wild animal you are cuddling up to there. Um, you know she might seem you know really fine now but you might do one thing that she uh, misinterprets or interprets correctly and you didn't really intend for her to read it that way and she will turn on you and it won't be her fault but she will get the repercussion for it you know she's the one who'll be you know maybe put down if she attacks me you know you are putting her in such danger by not not showing her the respect of being a wild animal. And that was really, really striking to me. And that was something that I tried to bring out in, in every aspect of the yeah. animal representation.
0: Yeah. 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 I remember um, Sue was um, often very friendly and, and taking care of Jean, but also very, yeah, very willing to um, just bite Jean um, uh, throughout the book. When, whenever Jean did something that was um, invaded, if Sue thought her space was being invaded or, or anything. Yeah. Um, um <clears throat> what, what uh, with respect to the concept of yeah anthropomorphization um i, I guess that yeah that's a, an idea that you're very interested in in the book um yeah the so I, I think i agree with you yeah that it's um um there's nothing wrong with using these sorts of analogies or or with attributing um emotions and whatnot to animals that that, that are the same as the emotions we we have um um we it's yeah, this is just sort of a natural way of trying to understand animals, and may- maybe sometimes we're misinterpreting a little bit because of it. But um, but uh, yeah, I think I think it's I think it's really quite useful a lot of the time. Um, and I think actually the um, the the charge. So I mean, often anthropomorphization is is a kind of charge that people make against um, scholars or interpreters or whatever. They'll say you're you're anthropomorph anthropomorphizing an animal right now, and therefore. You are misunderstanding the animal. You're getting it wrong. Um, I think that it probably that the way that the use of anthropomorphization as a charge is um, pretty closely connected to um, the subordination of animals. It seems like it's there's just this history of of um, uh, downplaying animals' interests or or of, of denying that they have an interest. Um, and and the the claim is that well, if they had the, the thought that they have this interest is is it, is a matter of anthropomorphization you're anthropomorphizing them if you think that they can feel pain i mean we, we all know now that animals can feel pain there's tons of uh science and whatnot showing that this is the case um uh you know especially with, with with vertebrate animals um but and we and presumably we always knew really because you can just look and interpret the animal's behavior and it's obvious that animals are feeling pain when they yelp or make some express express pain with pain noise uh, but for the longest time you know uh uh it, uh, throughout the history of um, of philosophy and science and whatnot, there there have been yeah even 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 as you know in the fifties and sixties and whatnot with I guess behaviorism um, it was not um, kosher to I, I guess to say that animals could feel pain you were just you, were, you would be charged with anthropomorphization if you said that they could they could um, suffer. And, um, and obviously, yeah, once, once someone says that, um, that animals can't suffer, (laughs) um, and they really believe it, then all of a sudden, oh, you can do whatever you want, I suppose. Um, and that's just, that's just like one example, but I think, I think there's this pattern of, um, using the concept of anthropomorphization to, as a, as a sort of cognitive tool for subordinating animals. Um, so it's kind of, it's kind of a dangerous concept too.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the real danger isn't anthropomorphism at all, but anthropocentrism, which is the centering of humans, uh, in the middle of absolutely everything. Um, we see the effects of anthropocentrism in the climate crisis and the extinction, the sixth extinction that we're currently facing. Um, we have centred ourselves and and uh, made out that, that everything we do is great and that all things are there for our use and we've used them to death and now there's, we're realising that there are repercussions to this. So anthropomorphism... Sure. You know, <laughs> like people have problems with it, but is that anything in the, in the face of, of um, the crisis that we've made? Not really. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I, and I guess maybe, maybe it makes sense to say that um, what what might motivate using the concept as a charge uh, motivate saying that uh, you're doing something bad by anthropomorphizing is itself anthropocentrism that it is anthropocentric to yes. use the concept of anthropomorphization in this sort of negative way where you're trying to undermine someone's claims about an animal.
1: Um, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so you can just accuse them back.
0: <laughs> right. You can, well, no, you're being anthropocentric. Yeah. That's just what yeah. you say now, I guess. Um, <laughs> right. Okay, cool. Um, well, listen, I've, yeah, I've, 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 taken up a lot of your time. This has been a great interview. Thanks for, for joining me uh, to talk Thank about you so your, much. yeah, yeah. Thanks. Um, uh, so yeah, the book we were talking about for anyone who um, has lost track is, it's, it's called the animals in that country. Um, and it was published in 2020 by scribe. Uh, the only other question I have for you is whether you're currently working on any projects. And if so, uh, what, what are you working on?
1: Yeah, I have a new book coming out next year in 2023, also with scribe called Gunflower. And that is a short story collection. And it's a mix of realist fiction and speculative fiction. And there will be a lot of animal stories in there. Uh, I wrote heaps and heaps of of stories about animals when I was writing this novel and um, I was always sad that, you know, they weren't weren't, uh, so much out in the world um, just published here and there. So I'm really, really excited about collecting them together and in the long term, I'm also working on another novel. Uh, it was supposed to be a gritty realist fiction, and then the pandemic happened and it turned speculative immediately. <laughs> it, doesn't oh, okay. <laughs> it doesn't have pandemic themes. doesn't have pandemic themes, but I, I think speculative fiction is the way that I'm coping with the world right now. So <laughs> I'm really enjoying being in the, the depths of that novel at the moment.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, uh, it's yeah, it's great that you have another book coming out, and uh, and I hope uh, the book you're you're in the process of writing. I hope that uh, you know the process goes well.
1: Thank you. <laughs> I'll <Yeah>. get there.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you will. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Great. Thanks a bunch.
1: Thank you.